It was a beautiful spring day in Montreal when this 15-year-old boy decided to go duck hunting with a couple of his buddies. They bagged a lot of game, and it was a great day until they got separated. Returning home, the 15-year-old came across both of his buddies, brutally murdered with spears and axes. Just then, he saw something out of the corner of his eye, and the chase was on. As this poor teenager ran for his life, he most certainly could not have known that someday he would wind up launching the world's first multinational corporation, that he'd have a whole chain of hotels named after him, and that he'd play a pivotal role in the history of a certain Minnesota city. More than a thousand miles away and two centuries into the future. The year? 1652. The hunter, a kid named Pierre Radisson. It's all part of the answer to this question. How did Duluth ever get that name? Let me tell you about my hometown, greatest in the Gopher State. I'll have to brag a little bit, but I really won't exaggerate. Big D-U-L-U-T-H Duluth, Duluth oh, That's my hometown Duluth, Duluth oh, That's my hometown This time on My Duluthian Life, we ask the burning question, how did Duluth ever get that funny name. It's a deep dive into some interestingly convoluted history. So you might ask, am I some kind of historian? No. Where I've spent most of my life is in the production of documentary type content for TV channels. And I've been fortunate to get some good awards along the way uh, for journalism. But I got my start in the Channel 3 newsroom in Duluth. That was back when um, Dick Anthony, uh, Gordy Paymar, uh, and uh, Marsh Nelson were around. So now you have some idea, a little bit of uh, the carbon dating of the voice you're hearing. Uh, it, it it was a start, and then it just it just sort of went from there. Call it another lasting artifact of my Duluthian life. So I'm going to put my reporter's hat back on now and jump into what this investigation has uncovered. There's a whole lot to the story, and we'll make sense out of it, but. You're, you're going to have to be patient because it is one tangled ball of yarn, believe me. And we're going to start off right from the beginning. On that spring afternoon in the 1600s, when Montreal, and for that matter, what would someday become Duluth, 
were both located in a place called New France. This 15-year-old, uh, Pierre Esprit Radisson, <laughs> how, did I, how did I do on that? I'm sorry, I'm going to hammer this, uh, these pronunciations, I'm sure. Uh, Radisson, <laughs> there, <clears throat> had only been, you know, in uh, New France, uh, outside of Montreal, uh, for about a year. Uh, he came over from old France, you know, uh, the one in Europe. At that time, Europe was a pretty awful place to be, by all accounts. France was actually having a civil war then, uh, part of a long chain of events that would lead, uh, a couple hundred years later, uh, to be written about in the novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. How'd I do that time? Uh, I, I just hope we don't have too many French language experts listening out there because if you are one, uh, I'm going to hurt your ears uh, in this piece by hammering that beautiful language of yours. I'm sorry. As for Radisson, uh, all right, that's it. It's going to be Radisson. As for Radisson, uh, the people that uh, chased him down that day were members of a band of Iroquois natives, the Mohawks. Yes, the inventors of the familiar hairdo by the same name. They'd actually been stalking Radisson for hours in the woods. Or, so Pierre figured, uh, according to what he wrote later on in his journals. But then the Mohawks didn't kill Radisson like they did his two buddies. Uh, he found out that was because when the Indians first stepped out from behind the trees, those guys turned and ran. But Pierre fought back. Uh, he shot back at the Indians with his fouling iron, uh, a primitive kind of shotgun, and uh, wounded uh, one of the Indians. The show of bravery, it turns out, impressed the Mohawks. So, instead of hacking his brains out, they dragged him, literally, back to their village, a few miles away, made him take off all of his clothes, went through his belongings, and, you know, took whatever they wanted. By this time, the whole village was on fire with excitement. Uh, they tied a rope around his waist to signify that he was a slave, uh, and then uh, they painted his face red. Young Radisson had no idea what was happening and could only presume his demise was going to be even worse than that of his dead friends. Like maybe getting tortured for a few days and then killed. Uh, after all, one of those tribesmen was still picking birdshot uh, from Radisson's gun uh, out of his uh, buttocks, you know, <laughs> uh, that had to rub him the wrong way, you'd have to think. Um, and Radisson was a white guy, uh, so did that uh, automatically make him uh, their enemy? I decided to get a little perspective on that, so I reached out to a certain David Woodward, 
otherwise known as Professor Woodward, and I'm in the history department at UMD, the University of Minnesota Duluth. So, what uh, what what part of history uh, exactly, David? Um, I taught in the American Indian Studies program, and specifically, I taught the um, American and Canadian fur trade. Today, we're accustomed to thinking of the relationship between European settlers and American Indians uh, as, you know, automatically adversarial. But in that era, when we had something called the fur trade, just starting up. That just wasn't true. Um, Is that, yeah, towards the end of that interaction period, we're talking early 19th century, um, the American government, the American society was wanting to remove Native Americans became a problem. Now, prior to that, they generally weren't seen as a problem. There was uh, a need to maintain a good relationship with the Native peoples. So that if we're talking about the French fur tra- or the fur trade in general, it doesn't become um, really a problematic relationship until the uh, dawn of the American experience, because then the Native people are in the way. What Radisson, this French teenager, could not possibly have imagined uh, is the full significance of the red paint applied to his face. It meant he was available for adoption. Yes. And we can construct a narrative, uh, much of it from Radisson's telling, you know, in, in these journals that he wrote. He wrote six really long journals uh, about everything he, you know, did. It turns out there was a couple in this band of Mohawk Iroquois uh, that had lost their son in battle. So they decided to adopt Pierre Radisson as their own making him a member of the tribe. But first, uh, we have to take Radisson's word for all this. Uh, young Pierre was put through, you know, a series of tests and uh, rituals, the, the stuff that seems to have provided lots of fodder for all the indigenous coming-of-age dramatizations uh, we've seen uh, cranking out of Hollywood down through time. So, you know, use your imagination it can't possibly have been very much fun. But finally, as a proven member of this Mohawk band, and even starting to get used to the food, Pierre Radisson was given a new name, Dodcon. It means little devil and that little devil remained uh, as a white, French, European member of the Iroquois Mohawks for some 20 months. A year and a half and change. In case you're wondering, there are some notes about how Radisson's hairstyle was changed during this time. Best we can make out, though, from his telling, it was more like getting a set of twin ponytails than uh, what we might be thinking of as the mohawk thing. Too bad. <laughs> like, you know, Google him and check out, you know, there's sketches of him online. Uh, can you imagine that guy with a full-on mohawk? 
<clears throat> oh man. Anyway, um, all right. Now we're going to skip a bunch of stuff. We're, we're just going to hop around, okay, from rock to rock uh, in this uh, river of time. Radisson decides to abandon his Mohawk life and return to French civilization. Time passes. And then a guy named Medard Chouart, a.k.a. Sieur de Grossier. I'm getting better at this, aren't I? Uh, de Grossier uh, enters the picture. He marries Radisson's sister, and it comes to light that Grossier has been dabbling in this thing called the fur trade, swapping all kinds of European uh, manufactured goods uh, with the Indians for beaver pelts. Grossier uh, thought you could make a great business out of this, but he already knew from experience the cultural interface between white Europeans and the indigenous nations of North America uh, could be tricky, uh, to say the least. Radisson, however, had first-hand knowledge of that. From the other side of the deal, having lived with the Mohawks as their guy, Dodcon. And so, the brothers-in-law agreed to team up and give it a whirl. It was in August 1659 when they set out with 30 Frenchmen and a large company of Huron and Ottawa Indians for a place they had heard was a veritable gold mine of fur, namely the region of Lake Superior. It was a rough trip, getting caught between uh, warring Indian tribes. Uh, there was often a, a lot of intertribal unrest, but they made it all the way to Shawamigan Bay, uh, right down by the Apostle Islands, and set up camp. Right there in what would become northern Wisconsin, they started cultivating contacts with the Dakota and Ojibwa Indians. Uh, they hoped to acquire a whole bunch of these furry treasures from them. And this is when de Grossier began to fully appreciate how lucky he was to have Pierre Radisson with him. Now, the Ojibwa were um, fierce traders. And the French, actually, there's firsthand counts in in in, um, in some of the journals of that time period that the French didn't like to trade with the Ojibwa because the Ojibwa were savvy and they often ripped off the French. <laughs> so this this sort of narrative that um, that Native Americans were perpetual victims really doesn't make uh, doesn't hold true during this time period, and uh, the French were at the mercy of the Ojibwa. But. Radisson and de Grossier proved equal to the challenge. By the next year, they were on their way home to Montreal, laden with furs and with visions of their newfound fortunes dancing in their heads. They fully expected uh, a hero's welcome. 
but not so fast. Instead, when they got home, they were arrested for trading on French soil without a license, poaching, and most of their cargo was swiftly confiscated. You know, some days nothing goes right. They tried to appeal, they uh, pleaded for backing uh, from France. They offered to set up a whole enterprise with the government, but France wanted nothing of it. They just didn't get it. And also, they apparently didn't get uh, what can happen when you pass on a really good pitch because Radisson and Grossier decided they'd just take their story to the competition. Had it gone differently, maybe Duluth would be called uh, Radisson now, or De Grossier. Uh, not likely, uh, but stay with me, okay? Having gotten the snub from their French countrymen, our intrepid entrepreneurs decided on something audacious. They sailed for England, gave their pitch to the Brits, and bingo. Radisson and Grossier got two ships to sail back, uh, a bunch of crew and uh, wads of cash. Instead of working out of Quebec and uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway, uh, their new headquarters would be on Hudson Bay. So, what to call this new venture? Hmm, let's see. I know, how about the Hudson Bay Company? Yeah, the Hudson Bay Company. There's a name with some staying power. From their adventures before, uh, Radisson and Grossier already knew the richest sources of fur were to the north and west of Lake Superior. And they'd already made some very important friends there, uh, the Ojibwa, uh, who are sometimes also called the Chippewa. At the time, they were the biggest Indian tribe north of the Rio Grande. The uh, Ojibwa uh, and the Cree and, and some of their tribal neighbors uh, were to do the trapping. In exchange for the fur, uh, they got all kinds of stuff from Europe. Knives, axes, uh, kettles were a uh, big item. Uh, and, of course, those gorgeous Hudson Bay blankets. Beautiful wool woven in England. Point blankets, they were called, be because of these uh, indigo stripes that they had on them. Uh, now, uh, the stripes didn't really designate how many beaver skins uh, they were worth, as most of us may have thought. I, that's what I thought. Um, they just marked the size and weight of the blanket. Uh, from there, uh, the traders still had to haggle with those shrewd Indian negotiators and hope not to get skinned alive, uh, figuratively speaking. Okay, no, nobody, nobody actually got skinned alive uh, in those deals uh, that we know of. 
except uh, well, except for the beavers. So it was the perfect setup, uh, a chain of lakes and rivers from the north shore of Lake Superior uh, right into those ships waiting up there in Hudson Bay uh, for the long trip back to Jolly Old. For the next 150 years, this was the Voyager's Highway, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, we call it now, We don't know how many hundreds or thousands of tons of fur moved up through those thousands of lakes and rivers, but we do know exactly how they did it. The Montreal Canoe, about 35 or 40 feet long, around 600 pounds. Uh, Each one carried uh, three tons of cargo, give or take in 60 or 70 packs, around 90 pounds apiece. Propulsion, provided by 10 or 12 crewmen, paddling at about one stroke per second, 15 hours a day, day in and day out. Only later would people complain of tennis elbow, having no idea what these guys had to do, But if you've canoed the Boundary Waters, you know what they had to do. Paddle and then portage. Carry all that stuff out of the canoe, and then the canoe itself, in their case, 600 pounds of it, uh, over what is hopefully a short bit of land. Then, back in the water, reload, relaunch, and paddle off again. I've stood many times on a shore, maybe on an island somewhere, 20 or 30 miles by canoe into the BWCA, maybe at sunset. And I, I swear I could almost see it, could almost hear it. Uh, maybe it still echoes uh, somehow out there across the lakes. To stand there is a gift to the soul, this watery wilderness, still unspoiled in the 21st century. I could have been standing, after all, uh, right where these voyageurs would have stood, looking out at the exact same scenery all those centuries ago. Portaging and traveling through this area by canoe um, has been done since at least 500 BC. 95 to 98% of all portages that are used today and all campsites that are in the Boundary Waters Canoe area probably are archaeological sites. Um, because if it's a good place to camp now, it was a thousand years ago. It, um, it took a while. But the French eventually got that they'd made a really big boo-boo, not getting into business with Radisson. Uh, Radisson, now the traitor, who went to work for France's arch-nemesis, the Brits. 
It was no less than King Louis XIV himself, uh, no doubt sitting on, you know, one of those fancy gilded chairs or thrones, whatever, who finally decided uh, to shake up the government of New France and tighten his grip over here, uh, particularly on the fur trade. So to carry out that task, a certain French nobleman was dispatched to command the Marines in Montreal and ultimately to undertake a kind of mission impossible should he decide to accept it, uh, which, which he did. <laughs> that nobleman and French Marine was Daniel Gracelon, a.k.a., yes, Sierre Duluth. And it was sometimes pronounced Duluth, even back then. Now, about this Sierre business, uh, it's the equivalent of the lordly British title, of course, Sir. But unlike the British, where royalty conferred such titles, in France, uh, you could just buy one at the time. And uh, apparently, Gracelin had a few francs to rub together. Uh, so he decided he'd like to be Sieur, or Lord, of Lut, capital L-H-U-T. Now, I couldn't find anybody who knew for sure what Lut was. Maybe a region, maybe a family. Uh, if you can find out... Uh, please let me know. Anyway, Graceland left for Lake Superior back in 78, uh, you know, 1678. Uh, he, he made it, uh, to Western Lake Superior, uh, in the spring of the next year. Now, whose footsteps was he following in? You might wonder when you check into the hotel there on Superior Street. Hint, hint. Well, in French farthest end of the lake is Fond du Lac, or as we say in Duluth, Fond du Lac. Uh, it's one word. There's like a J in there. Um, now, I myself also visited Fond du Lac and at a much younger age than um, Sierre Duluth. I might have been hmm, eight or ten years old. My discovery was as a passenger in the family car driven by my dad. He would make this journey in the winter when he was home from sailing the lakes. It turns out there was a bar in Fond du Lac that had a really good price on a certain prized beverage, Northern Beer, sold in those really sturdy, you know, re reusable cardboard cases. Um, uh, you could make a bookcase out of them if you were in college uh, back in the 70s <laughs> or 80s. I don't know. Uh, when did they go out of style? Uh, anyway, <clears throat> Dad would, would turn in uh, his empties and get a case of uh, full ones. This was a real adventure, going to Fond du Lac, because while Dad waited for his new case of Northern, he would take a seat at the bar, me next to him, and we would each have exactly one drink. His would be beer. Mine was probably mm, orange soda or something. 
Part of what made this a real sensation, though, was that the bartender was a woman. Another grown-up, just like Dad. Uh, She had blonde hair, and her name was uh, Frosty. Mm Mm-hmm. Frosty. I was so impressed by how friendly Frosty was, calling me by name and everything. But I didn't know uh, for sure uh, if I should call her Mrs. Frosty uh, or what, you know? I, I was just a kid, so I didn't say much. But it was always a very polite visit. And it didn't seem too strange because Dad would tell Mom all about it. He would even mention Frosty when when we got home, and uh, she would just kind of chuckle. Anyway, when Daniel Graceland arrived in Fond du Lac a a few hundred years earlier, uh, there was no Frosty, I guess, and uh, no Northern beer either yet. But he had more serious stuff to do anyway. he, he called a peace summit there between the heads of the uh, Ojibwa and Dakota Indians. Uh, maybe something like the um, you know Middle East Peace Accords, except right in Fond du Lac. Because di- diplomacy was uh, Graceland's most important mission. Uh, the French wanted back into the fur trade. Uh, in a big way, uh, and that required uh, the cooperation of Indian trappers. Um, These tribes were often at war with one another, and that was just not good for business. Well, all right, whatever the motivation, peace uh, is a worthy objective, right? But now, it's important to remember, um, if it hadn't been for Radisson and his brother-in-law, and they're getting to Lake Superior 20 years uh, before, uh, and then getting the Hudson Bay Company up and running, if not for all that, uh, France may well not have seen the importance of sending uh, Sierra Duluth all the way out here to become, as best we know, the first European to actually set foot on the spot that would someday become, I don't know, Canal Park, <laughs> Michigan Street, uh, Lake Avenue. I, 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 we don't know. But he is credited as being that first European to uh, actually uh, walk what would become the streets of Duluth. Okay. All right. Now. Roll the clock ahead a couple hundred years. By the middle 1800s, the fur trade was becoming a thing of the past. And what would eventually be called Duluth was still a thing of the future. Sierra Duluth's name still hadn't been adopted. What you had uh, leading up to the 1870s at the head of Lake Superior was just a cluster of small, disconnected settlements with all different names and and governments. Starting on the western end of it, we we already had uh, Fond du Lac, but then a whole bunch more of these little villages as you worked your way to the east. You had the Fremont neighborhood, 
uh, Portland, you know, the Portland malt shop. Yeah. Okay. That's that, that area right there was a village called Portland. And then you have the Indian neighborhood, which is named after a Philadelphia neighborhood, I believe. Those were the names that were used before they adopted, uh, the name Duluth. Would that be right? Yep. And you know, Rice's point is after the fur trader there is named Rice. And then if you get out to Lakeside, um, you have two two villages out there. Away from the lake was um, called Bellevue, and then on the lakeshore there was New London. And if you drive through Lakeview, the lakeside right now, you have the New London Cafe, which is a modern cafe, but they named it that because of its original name as a village. So all of these were villages that had their own government. And when did it all pull together into being Duluth? Well, what there was, I think it was Jay Cook, who wanted to, they projected in the 1870s that Duluth was going to actually get bigger and more powerful than Chicago at that time. And so, and actually, um, the city plot is plotted for city streets from Lakeside all the way to Two Harbors. So there's actually plans for city streets, you know, 102nd Avenue East, you know, 200, you know, that kind of thing. So they they fully expected Duluth to um, and Jay Cook's Northern Pacific Railroad to be the main lifeline heading um, heading west and bringing all the agricultural stuff into um, a closer port than Chicago. In the combining of all these villages were starting that process of making this a Chicago, and they they fully thought it was going to be a Chicago. But, as we know, fate had another future in mind for Duluth. Maybe a better one. As for Radisson, after launching the Hudson Bay Company that would go on for centuries, launch department stores and make vast fortunes, in 1710, Pierre himself died in London, virtually penniless. As for Daniel Graceland, Sierra Duluth, he died that same year and was buried in Montreal. Though, of course, we still have both a city and one of its major roads to remember him by. And the fur trade? What was that all about? I'll tell you. Top hats. Yes, they were all the rage in Europe, uh, Abe Lincoln had one. <laughs> Big stovepipe beaver felt top hats, rendered by uh, removing the fur uh, from uh, a beaver hide using mercury, the fumes of which we now know are what made all those hatters so mad. The fur trade finally ended uh, right around 1840 uh, when silk came in and replaced felt uh, as a fashion statement. A lot of money in fashion. As for Duluth, no, it never did quite become Chicago. And you know, that's just fine with us, isn't it? What do you think, Professor Woodward? I can go on and on and on. So, and I'm passionate about Duluth history and Duluth. This is 
for me, Duluth is a utopia. It's a rusty, cool town with good beer. I mean, what else could you ask for? My Duluthian Life with Jim Hayden is produced monthly by Planet Pictures Media. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.